today we are continuing our study of uh, John's gospel, and we are looking at John 13, 21 through 38. And as you are turning there, um, something that's important for us to all remember is that for any event or, or teaching moment to be recorded in scripture at all means that it's important for us. There's nothing in this book that doesn't matter to our lives. Every word of it is important. But when we see an, an event that is uh, recorded more than once, if it's in there twice, there, it's, it's there, there's some extra emphasis there. It means we need to pay closer attention to it. And then when we see an event like what we're going to see in this passage, one that's recorded in every gospel account, it's one of those places where we can almost treat it as though the, the Holy Spirit is underlining, highlighting, circling, surrounding it with arrows and punctuation points, whatever it is that we do in our Bibles to make sure that we are paying attention in there and saying, this really matters for us. And so it's fair to say that the events of, of John 13, 21 through 38 are like that because most of them are recorded in all four Gospels. And uh, therefore, there's something that God wants us to pay careful attention to. Now, in his writing and teaching, the late Warren Wearsby described this passage as uh, displaying Jesus' two main aims, to fulfill the will of God and to glorify God. And I think that's, I think that's right, and I think that's a helpful way to look at this. Um, because, and this, these are themes that we've touched on repeatedly throughout our exploration of John's gospel. Uh, Jesus, for example, said that his food was to do the will of him who sent, sent me and to accomplish his work in John 4.34 and acted based on the timeline that he, the Father, and the Holy Spirit set forth before the foundations of the world, waiting for the hour that was to come when his identity would be revealed and he would be glorified as he, as he would repeatedly warn people when he said, it's not my time yet, like he did to Mary, his mother, in John 2, 4. And so as we begin our time together, we need to, and as we look at this passage, we need to ask, how does Jesus do this? Specifically, how do we see Jesus glorifying God in John 13, 21 through 38. And there are three specific ways that I want us to focus on this evening. And that's first, that Jesus glorifies God by loving those who love darkness. Second, that Jesus glorifies God by commanding us to love one another as he loves us. And third, that Jesus glorifies God by loving us even when our love for him fails. So, as we get into this really quickly, let's remind ourselves of some background information uh, about a special meal that's happening here. Um, the, the Jesus and the 12, they're in the upper room. It's, it's the night before he's arrested. Um, we looked at some of these details when we, when we began studying John 12. So uh, if you're here uh, when we did that, this might, there might be some pieces that are familiar, but um, it's good to be reminded of this. So 
When eating a meal like the one that they were, Jesus and his disciples, they wouldn't have been sitting at a high table on chairs like we would at, say, Thanksgiving. That's not what they did. Instead, they would be reclining on the ground with their heads toward a low table with their feet facing away, um, usually shaped in some kind of horseshoe type pattern. And they would be propped up on one elbow and they'd be, and that would leave them free to eat with, the other, with the, their other hand. And so as the host of the meal, Jesus was in the center of this arrangement. Um, and a natural question is, is who was on either side of him? And so one thing that we see right away in this passage is that John was to his right. And in this position where he could, where he could easily lean back and speak privately to Jesus. But who was on his left in that place that going against what we might naturally assume was actually the place of greatest honor in this setup. The one that was reserved for an honored guest, a place fitting for a close friend, one whom the host trusts. Now, we might assume naturally that it was, you know, Peter or James, the other two disciples who made up Jesus' inner circle, his most trusted confidants among all the disciples. But according to, but it doesn't look like it's them. Instead, based on the way the events play out in the next few verses, it seems to be someone who is a little bit unexpected. It seems to be Judas. The same Judas who was about to betray him. Driving home the words of Psalm 41.9 that Jesus quoted in verse 18, that even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And that's actually what leads us into the first truth that we're going to see in our passage, that Jesus glorifies God by loving those who love darkness. See, Jesus knew Judas's heart better than anyone, even better than Judas himself. He knew Judas was a betrayer, even when no one else did. And by positioning him in this place of honor to be right next to Jesus, it was almost as though Jesus was saying to Judas, Judas, are you sure that what you're planning is what you want to do? Are you sure? And in these details, in the seating arrangements of the meal that they were eating, Jesus was showing his love for Judas. But we know that Judas didn't love him. Now, look at the first verse of our passage tonight, verse 21. After saying these things, so after giving this, after everything he said in verses uh, 1 through, through 20 of, of the passage, talking about being a servant and, uh, and making everyone clean and warning that there was a betrayer among them. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, the language here that Jesus was troubled in his spirit this is the same language that we see in John eleven thirty three at Lazarus's tomb. This idea, the idea being that Jesus was dis extremely disturbed or agitated and basically let out this involuntary gasp there when he felt the sorrow 
of all who were at the tomb. He was with them in their pain, and he felt the effects of sin in the world. And here, there's this noticeable change in his countenance as he's speaking to his disciples. He's deeply troubled again, and he lets out this audible, sorrowful sigh and says, one of you is about to betray me. And he said this because he knew where Judas's allegiance lay. Judas loved darkness, and he hated the light. And yet Jesus loved him still. Knowing what was going to happen, knowing that it was happening to fulfill the will of God, that through Judas's betrayal, salvation would be accomplished. Jesus' heart still ached because he knew the consequences of Judas' choice for Judas, that he was separating himself from God, that he was rejecting Jesus in this profound way. And so as we continue on in the passage at verse 22, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at at table at Jesus' side. And so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. And so that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? So the disciples had all heard Jesus' words. And they're all wondering, who is this? Is, Is it me? And in fact, in Matthew's account of this this moment, each of them actually outright asked Jesus, is it I, Lord? Am I the one who's going to betray you? And so Peter, being Peter, gave gave John, the disciple that Jesus, uh, whom Jesus loved, a little nudge, a little non-verbal. He's like, hey, how about you, you ask him? Ask him who he's talking about. And so John leans back and he, and he asks, Lord, who is it? And what's interesting about this is, this is, this is essentially a private conversation between Jesus and John here that we are getting a glimpse of. And so Jesus answers, it's he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. And so when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Jesus, Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, go buy what we need for the feast, or he should give something to the poor. So Jesus revealed the truth to John. That Judas was the betrayer. And he did it by dipping this bread into the cup and offering it to Judas. And in the offer, in handing him this bread, Jesus was also making one final appeal to Judas. So D.A. Carson described this moment as an act of supreme love. A service not unlike Jesus' washing of the disciples' feet uh, moments earlier. It's as though Jesus is saying, here, take this, eat. Receive what I'm offering you, Judas. Not merely bread, not merely wine, but me, the bread of life. 
But, Carson wrote, Judas received the bread, but he didn't receive the love. And instead of breaking him and urging him to contrition, this act hardened Judas's resolve. And so instead of surrendering to Jesus' love, Judas surrendered himself to Satan. And this, this idea here, it's, it's a little bit unclear, unclear exactly what that means. But it potentially has the, the idea of actual demonic possession in mind. But we don't know for sure. Meanwhile, the ten didn't understand any of what was happening. They didn't hear what Jesus had said to John, which is why they thought perhaps he was being sent to buy more supplies or to provide for the poor. But then there's John. Who knows what's going on? Who heard this? Why didn't he say something? And the truth is, we don't know. Perhaps he was simply too stunned to speak. Maybe it was the Holy Spirit preventing him from speaking. Because if he spoke up, what would the other, what would the other disciples have done? They might have tried to stop Judas. And what would that have led to? We don't know. But whatever the case, there was a purpose to this. It was so that Judas could obey Jesus' command. What you're going to do, do quickly. And so after receiving the morsel of bread, he went out and it was night. Now, those final words are are significant too because it was night. Because these matter not just because it's telling us the time that this occurred, that, that we're getting closer to the moment of Jesus' arrest, that time is moving fast, and that the hour of the Lord was nearly upon them. But these words also should draw our attention back to something that we read in John three nineteen and 20, that is this, this statement about the judgment that God offers in sending Jesus into the world. That light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. And so despite the love that Jesus showed for Judas, Judas rejected him. He went out and left to do what his heart was set on. He loved the darkness and not the light, and he was given over to it fully. And he was going to experience the judgment of the Lord because of it. Now, this is some heavy stuff, but we got to think about what, what should we, what should, what, how should we respond to even just what we've heard so far? Because all of us know people who, practically speaking, are opposed to God in how they speak, in how they live, and how they act, who snub every offer of kindness and mercy and forgiveness from him. And some of us actually remember being those people once upon a time. I'm going to put my hand up for that. But what do we think of these people, really? Are we pursuing them in love the way that we see Jesus pursuing 
Judas, even up to the end? Are we willing to be uncomfortable, to be rejected, even by people that we care about? Or do we erect barriers and create greater distances between us and them with each passing day? Do we, we come to a place where we stop seeing, seeing people who live apart from Jesus, not as people, but as just other? And let's be honest. The latter way is way easier. But it's not what our communities and it's not what our world needs, and it's not what God wants for us. Our neighbors need to know Christians who aren't a caricature that they've read something about on the internet. They need to see us as people who practice what we preach, who welcome people who are unlike them into our lives, who love the way that Jesus loved, because through that love, some of them might actually turn from their sins and be saved. It doesn't always happen. But for some, it does. And Jesus glorified God by loving Judas up until the end. And he glorifies God by loving those who love darkness. And he calls us and he challenges us to do the same. Now, let's keep going here. Let's look at verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. So Jesus says that his time to be glorified is here. He's about to be betrayed by Judas and given over to the religious leaders and to the Roman officials to be, uh, to be crucified, to be executed, buried, left for dead, and then to rise again. And this is how the will of God will be fulfilled. And he says where he is going, the disciples can't follow. He's going to not just, he's not just going to die. He's going to return to the Father, to the glory that he had at the beginning. But rather than leaving his disciples merely to grieve, Jesus had something else in mind. And as we'll see in uh, the chapters that follow, that was to prepare them for how to live after he returned to the Father and while they await his return. And so he gave them this commandment, starting in verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And here's the next way that we see Jesus glorifying God in this passage. That Jesus glorifies God by commanding us to love one another as he loves us. So this command is both incredibly simple, so simple that a toddler can at least comprehend the words of it and even memorize them. But it's so profound that if you've been a Christian for more than a few days, you're going to see 
how challenging it is for how we actually live. And so it actually requires us to, to think, ask some important questions of ourselves, a couple of them. First, the first question is, is what's new about this, this command? Because it sounds very familiar to other things that, are, that we read all through Scripture. And in terms of that basic content, there isn't anything that's new about it. Jesus previously taught that the greatest commandments are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That's uh, Deuteronomy 6.5. And likewise, to love your neighbor as yourself. From Leviticus 19.18. And he said that all the law and the prophets were summed up in these two commands. But it's not the content of the command that's new. But there's something new about it. The, the, the new is the standard, the measure of this command. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another, Jesus said. Jesus' love for his disciples was and is the standard that we are held to when we consider this command. And so that leads to our next question. How did Jesus love his disciples? Immediately, uh, immediately prior to this, we saw him serving them, washing their feet and declaring them, them clean. That would be the immediate thing that would come to mind if, uh, to them hearing this. But in a sense, even letting Judas go was an act of service. Because Judas' betrayal would lead to his arrest and his death so that our sins could be forgiven. And then after his resurrection, how did he and does he love us? By sending the Holy Spirit to help us, to guide us and to comfort us, to teach us. And he does it still by praying for us continually, always interceding on our behalf before the Father. And this is the call that he gives to all of us as his followers. If you've put your faith in Jesus, this is the basics of what it means to live as a Christian. He calls us to love one another, not in a generic sense, but specifically and sacrificially. And it's this kind of love that makes this command that, that not just makes this command distinct, but makes us as his people distinct. This commandment doesn't mean merely loving people who are like us. It's loving people who aren't like us. People who, by any other standard, would have no reason to know one another at all, except that Jesus brings them together and he calls them family. And makes them concerned for one another's needs. I mean, just look around this room. Apart from Jesus, do we have any reason that we would know each other at all? I mean, I think, I think about my, the people in my community group. I love the people in my community group. I love Mark Nestor. I love Pam Nestor. They are amazing people. I love the, I love the Shellstads. They are amazing people. If I didn't know Jesus, I wouldn't know these people because I would have no reason to know these people at all. 
And yet, Jesus brings us together. He makes us concerned for one another's needs. To rejoice together when one suffers. To re- or to suffer together when one suffers. We shouldn't rejoice together when one suffers. That's pretty terrible. Um, but we should rejoice together when one is honored. To, he brings us together, as Augustine put it, to love not as those who are corrupt love one another. Not as men love one another because they're, because they're men, because they're people, but as they love one another because they are sons of the Most High, so that they may be brothers to his only Son, loving each other with the love with which he himself loved them, who will lead them to that end which may suffice for them, where their desire may be sated in good things. For when God will be all in all, then nothing will be lacking to their desire. So, how should we respond to this individually and, and as a church? And I think, when I, when I think about this, when, as I've been praying about this, I think largely, this command that Jesus gives us, this should just serve as an encouragement, first and foremost, for us as a church. Because at Refuge, by God's grace, we strive to be a community that, that practices this kind of love. Are we perfect? Not even close. We're people. We can't be perfect. But the Lord is working through us. And I've seen that. I mean, I think about when my family first came here as weary immigrants with very few friends in this area. This church welcomed us in. This church made us family. And the same is so true for so many of us because most of us who are here are not native Tennesseans, but to borrow a saying that they use in Atlantic Canada, most of us come from away. Home is somewhere else. And so we find this ragtag found family in the church. And God works through that for his glory. And when people here have babies or when health fails or there's an emergency that occurs, I get blown away seeing how quickly someone sets up a meal train or how, or how fast there is an offer of practical help, or someone just sends out a text saying, hey, I heard what's happening. I'm praying for you. Let me know what you need. And what's more amazing is that when someone asks, let, asks or says, let me know how I can help, guys, they actually mean it. It's crazy. It's amazing. And so as much as we should be encouraged by this, and we should be encouraged by this, we should also consider where we see opportunities from gr- for growth. How can we even more faithfully live out this command, this command to love one another as Jesus loves us that we're called to? And that can be a really good discussion point for community groups this week. So um, give that some thought during, not just during communion, uh, in the, the, as you go home tonight, as you talk together, but talk about it in your community groups as well. Because Jesus glorified God by giving us this command. And this is how we glorify God, by obeying Jesus' command. 
by loving one another as Jesus first loved us. So then we get to the final portion of our text tonight. Verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus said, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And so in our final verses, we, it seems like Peter almost glossed over this, this commandment that Jesus gave him, and he was much more concerned about what he said before that, about Jesus going away and not being able to follow him. And he's like, okay, okay, love one another. Okay, got it, cool, we can do that. But hold up, where are you going? And so Jesus, uh, Peter, like those, those religious leaders before him in John 7, 36, he didn't understand what Jesus was saying. He didn't realize that Jesus was speaking of his return to his glorified state at the right hand of the Father, where he would prepare a place for his people, which we'll likely be talking about next week when we get to John 14. And so Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. Jesus said this to Peter, not as a rebuke. We've seen Jesus rebuke Peter plenty of times. We normally expect that that's what's going to happen every time we see Peter open his mouth before the, before the Spirit came and filled everyone in the book of Acts. Because he's like us, and half the time when he opens his mouth, he, it's just to take one foot out and insert the other. Um, so I, I really resonate with Peter, guys. Um, <laughs> but he says this not as a rebuke, but almost with more of an encouragement to be patient. It's like he's saying to him, Peter, my hour is here. Yours hasn't come yet. There's work for you to do here. But when it's time, you'll be with me. Peter couldn't follow him because he couldn't accomplish the work that Jesus was uniquely called to accomplish. Only Jesus could accomplish the salvation of the world. He was the unique lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, Peter would eventually follow Jesus in death, but it wasn't as uh, it wasn't the same kind of death. It was a death that was a testimony to the truth of who Jesus is. And when he died, he would join him in glory. But not yet. And although, Jesus, although Peter still didn't get it, and understandably so, it did begin to dawn on him that there was danger coming. And so he asked, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Now again, it's really easy to drag on Peter here, but there's a genuineness to his claim. He has good intentions here. He is sincere as all get out because he is ready to go, for, go to war for Jesus. 
And we're going to see that happen in John 18 when the mob finally arrives to take him and Peter draws a sword and cuts a man's ear off. He didn't fully understand what was going on here, though. And he still didn't fully understand who Jesus truly was. But you know what we can know for sure? We can know that Peter truly loved Jesus. But even so, despite the the sincerity of Peter's love for Jesus, his love would falter. As Jesus revealed in verse 38, will you say, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And this is, and in this, we see the third way that Jesus glorifies God. Because Jesus glorifies God by loving us even when our love for him failed. He loved Peter even as he corrected him and challenged his good intentions, his, his, his sincerity in this, this statement that he would join him in death. He knew that Peter would fall short of his intentions and that he would fail. But again, notice all throughout, Jesus doesn't leave him wallowing in sorrow for what's going to happen. Instead, before he even says a word about his denial, He tells Peter that he will be with Jesus in glory. And so as we consider what Jesus is saying to us in this, I wonder if it's that kind of assurance that all of us need in this moment. I mean, we all have good intentions when it comes to our faith and our desire to follow Jesus in big and small ways. And, you know, we, it's easy to talk about what we would do in hypothetical terms um, about, you know, imagining what persecution in this, in this country would look like and how we would stand for Jesus. And sometimes, and, but we, the truth is we don't really know what anything, what we're going to do until the, on anything, until the moment that we're in, we're ex- actually experiencing it. Because while we want to f- glorify God in every part of our lives, we all fall short. Our reach exceeds our grasp. We're distracted by the cares of the world or often something just shiny that pops up on our phones. And when we do fall short, what do we most often do? We assume that God is mad at us, and we start to treat his love as conditional or transactional. But this interaction with Peter is a word for us, that while our sins, they are many, Jesus' mercy is more. Jesus loves us in our failures. He loves us when we fall short. And so where do you need that reminder today? Where do you need to remember his love for you and to allow that knowledge to change how you approach tomorrow? And as we prepare to take, uh, to continue our worship of Jesus by taking communion and remembering the, the body of Jesus broken for us and his blood shed for us, this is an opportunity for us to approach him and ask where we need to be reminded of this truth. And 
what needs to change in our life, not just starting tomorrow, but starting today. Now, for some of us, for for many of us in this room, we have professed faith in Jesus. We trust Jesus. We can sing the song that we sang just at the at the end of the be, uh, of our opening worship time with full integrity in our hearts. But we're still going to struggle. We're still going to fall short. But for others, maybe it's you've been you've been asking questions about who Jesus is for a long time. Maybe you've been holding off on saying, yes, I love and obey and worship Jesus. Jesus is God. Maybe today that change that you need to make is simply to say, Lord, I, I submit myself to you. And so whatever that is, let's bring it to the Lord and trust that he will not only reveal to us what we need to know, but that he will give us grace upon grace as we seek to glorify him. So Jesus' two aims in his earthly ministry were to fulfill the will of God and to glorify God. In all that he said and did, in all that he calls us to do, this was his purpose. And so Jesus glorifies God by loving those who love darkness. He glorifies God by commanding us to love one another as he loves us. And he glorifies God by loving us even when our love fails. And he calls us and empowers us to go and do likewise in his power and in his grace, knowing that even when we fall short, there will still be more grace for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the way that Jesus loves broken, rebellious, stubborn, sinful people. Thank you for the way that he loves broken, rebellious, sinful people who also love him. Thank you for the mercy that he shows us, for the grace that he gives us, that he glorifies himself through us. And how just astounding that is, that he would use people like us as instruments to bring the greatest news of all time into the world, to make known that that salvation is available to all through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. God, please give us the strength that we need this week, wherever it is that you are, that you are, pressing into our hearts and our minds today. Give us what we need to obey you, to trust you, to believe that what you said is true, and to believe that even when 
we fall short of our own desires to obey you. God, thank you for tonight. Thank you that you're with us here and now, that you're always with us. And I pray that we would rejoice as we continue our worship together.